Hi there, it's Lisa Rudman from Making Contact. Before we play this next show, I want to ask you to make a donation to our work. You could become part of a group of supporters who believe in the value of independent media. You know, we can only do this work with your support. No government funding, no corporations, just you. So please take a minute, go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a generous donation today. Thank you so much. Now here's the show. Making, making contact. Making, 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 making contact. I'm Salima Hamarani, and on today's Making Contact, we bring you a piece from our friends at 70 Million about asylum and child separation at the border. It used to be more common to just present yourself at the border of the U.S. and ask for protection if you were fleeing violence in your home country. But more recently, under the Trump administration, border officials have started to immediately detain immigrants and hold them in detention centers while they wait for their asylum cases. And they were often separated from their children. Asylum seekers were now waiting months or years in these centers, which have become yet another dehumanizing incarceration system. Reporters Valeria Fernandez and Jude Jeff Block spent a year following asylum seekers, especially the case of Maria and her niece. Here's Valeria. In March, just as the COVID-19 pandemic hit the United States, Jude and I drive to Sonoita, Mexico, a border town. We've been tracing the cases of two asylum seekers from Guatemala, a 22-year-old woman named Maria and her five-year-old child. It is almost the one-year anniversary of Maria and her child coming through Sonoita and presenting themselves at the port of entry on the Arizona side of the border and asking for protection. We arrive at an internet cafe that Maria once visited. It's a bright purple storefront that draws a young crowd, mostly local students from a nearby school. The kids come for the video games and Tosti Locos, a favorite snack. But Maria came for different reasons. It's the only place I know of in town where we can print and photocopy and email. That's Alexa Tamar Smith an American border activist and volunteer who spends a lot of time here in Sonoita helping asylum seekers, including Maria and her child. The first time I met Maria and her little girl was at a migrant shelter. Alexa Tamar describes Maria as petite and often shying away from attention. The little girl is outgoing. We aren't using Maria's last name or her child's name for their own safety. Maria is the only family member that this girl has any memories of. Maria wanted to apply for asylum in the U.S., but volunteers warned her she and the girl could be detained or separated. If they were lucky, they would be released. The year before, in 2018, a federal judge had barred the Trump administration from separating parents and children at the border. 
but there was no guarantee it wouldn't happen to Maria and her niece. Maria hoped for the best, but volunteers helped her prepare for the worst. Here, at the Purple Internet Cafe, volunteers helped arm Maria with documents that showed her relationship to the girl. Birth certificates, death certificates, plus a letter in both English and Spanish stating that she did not consent to be separated. Among these legal documents was a particularly hard one for Maria to sign. And I remember we were sitting inside, and at that time, Maria didn't know how to read. So we were going through it line by line and making sure that she understands every line. And she was having trouble, like, absorbing what was going on. Do you have a sense of what her biggest fear was at that moment of what could happen? Being separated from her little girl. Just a few days before the girl's sixth birthday in March 2019, Maria and her niece held hands as they walked up to the Lukeville, Arizona port of entry to ask for asylum. They were immediately detained. Maria tells us what happened next during a phone call from the Eloy Detention Center in Central Arizona. Maria says that a day after she and her niece were detained, they were sleeping in a room when a border official came in and pulled a girl out of Maria's arms and took her away. She says a female guard told her, We're going to take the girl and not give her back. I told her, you can't do that without my authorization. Yes, of course we can, she told me. When Maria and her niece present themselves at the port of entry in 2019, the Trump administration is in the midst of turning the asylum system on its head. The biggest loophole drawing illegal aliens to our borders is the use of fraudulent or meritless asylum claims to gain entry into our great country. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement did not respond to our request for an interview. But in the months before Maria arrived at the border, President Donald Trump accused asylum seekers of being gang members and making fraudulent claims. My administration is finalizing a plan to end the rampant abuse of our asylum system. The asylum system, designed to protect people from harm, became one that inflicts harm. One way is by locking up asylum seekers for months or years until they either win their case, are deported, or give up. We're going to no longer release. We're going to catch. We're not going to release. They're going to stay with us until the deportation hearing or the asylum hearing takes place. ICE detains asylum seekers in a network of more than 200 immigration detention facilities, including detention centers run by private corporations and dozens of county jails. By September 2019, more than 50,000 adult immigrants are held in this matrix of detention centers, according to ICE data. I meet Maria for the first time at the Eloy Detention Center. It's been six months since Maria and her niece were separated at the border, and she still can't grasp why she's being detained. 
I didn't do anything. My only mistake was simply to ask for asylum and come into this country. Maria left Guatemala after a series of deadly attacks against her family over a land dispute. A local gang in her rural town killed her mother in front of her when she was a teenager. Years later, in 2013, they murdered her dad and her sister. Because I ran, that's how they didn't kill me, the day they killed my father. She managed to escape and call the police. When she returned later that evening, she found her sister's eight-month-old baby near death, with blood in her mouth, her little legs bound. Since then, she's raised her as her own daughter. After her niece was taken away from her at the port of entry in Arizona, Maria learned the child was sent to New York to foster care. It was only later that she understood New York was a state more than 2,400 miles away. Without her, I feel like everything is over. I feel very lonely without her. The volunteers Maria met in Mexico rallied to help. They located her knees and got an organization that advocates for children to arrange phone calls between them. I told her that I hope they would release both of us soon. But she's suffering because she thinks that she won't see me again. By the time Maria's detained in 2019, a legal fight against the system that keeps thousands of asylum seekers locked up indefinitely is growing. One person challenging asylum detention is a Haitian man named Ansley Damus. Hi. Hi, Ansley. This How is you? I'm yes. good. I'm good. And we're joined by Philippe, who is a Creole speaker. We're speaking with Ansley through Zoom. In Haiti, Ansley was a teacher and taught ethics. In 2014, during a seminar with students, he criticized a local politician for corruption. Later that day, an armed gang with ties to the politician threw a rock at Ansley, beat him up, and set his motorcycle on fire. Then he got death threats. Et puis, après 10 jours, Ten days later, I had to leave Haiti. It's with tears I left my country, leaving two kids behind. My little daughter, four years old. My little son, five months old. Ansley first went to South America and eventually made it to Calexico, where he presented himself at the port of entry in October 2016. He was taken into custody and eventually wound up outside of Cleveland in a windowless cell in the Geauga County Jail. Ansley was shocked that this is what asking for asylum would lead to. It does not make any sense to me that they would throw people who are looking for protection in jail. If Ansley had arrived a few years earlier, it's almost certain he would have been released on parole and would have been able to live freely while fighting his asylum case. Here's attorney Michael Tan. 
Under the Obama administration, DHS put a directive in place about a decade ago called the Parole Directive that generally prohibits the detention of asylum seekers. The overwhelming majority of arriving asylum seekers were granted parole in the years immediately after the policy took effect. Because, you know, there was just a recognition. It didn't make sense to lock up asylum seekers while they were fighting their cases. A lot of these people go on to win asylum, so why are we putting them in jail? But as more asylum seekers started coming during the Obama administration, parole grants became less common. In early 2017, ICE denied Ansley's bid for parole. That same year, at the regional ICE office closest to Ansley, the new Trump administration also denied 98% of all parole requests from asylum seekers. The numbers were similar in other parts of the country. Not all asylum seekers have lawyers, but Ansley managed to get one. After he'd been jailed for six months, his lawyer helped him win asylum from an immigration judge. The victory should have meant Ansley would be freed, but ICE appealed the ruling and Ansley learned he'd have to stay in jail in the meantime, even though he'd won. Then, an American couple in Cleveland Heights offered to help him try to get out of custody. We had a friend contact us. She's really involved in immigration, and she asked us if we would be willing to sponsor an asylum seeker. So we kind of looked at each other and said, yes, we would do it. We kind of felt it was... We were being called to do it. We thought it was outrageous, un-American even, that Ansley had been locked up for, at that point, 14 months and had no contact with his family, no way to exercise, nothing really to do in this big dormitory room with no windows. That's Melody Hart and Gary Benjamin, a couple in their 60s. They talked to us from their home. They agreed to be Ansley's sponsors so he could live with them if ICE released him. Ansley told us it was a happy surprise the day Melody and Gary showed up to visit him. The thing that got to me is when they sent me letters and they told me, oh, it's not just them. There was a whole army who were praying for me and ready to help me. And I knew I was in good hands. Melody and Gary formed a group called Ansley's Army. They would send him cards and send him encouragement. And if we were gone, they would come in our place to visit him and talk to him. But even with Melody and Gary as willing sponsors, I still denied Ansley's second parole request. At that point, Ansley became the lead plaintiff in an ACLU class action lawsuit challenging the Trump administration's blanket denials of parole to asylum seekers. In July 2018, Ansley's lawsuit got a favorable ruling. A federal judge in Washington, D.C. has ruled that the Trump administration cannot arbitrarily detain people seeking asylum. ICE was violating its own policies, the judge found. He ordered ICE officials in five regional offices, including Ansley's, to review each individual case to determine whether asylum seekers qualified for parole. Next, Ansley applied for parole a third time. His application included an ACLU petition with 27,000 signatures calling for his release. And Melody and Gary assembled a packet of letters of support. There were local officials like judges and, and council members, and there were doctors. We were looking to make it bulletproof. But I still said no. And, it, and we were shocked because we thought we'd done everything 
possible to get them to agree. Yeah, I think the phrase shocked, but maybe not so surprised, (laughs) because that's the way they were acting towards asylum seekers. Ansley, with the help of the ACLU, once again sued in federal court. This time it was a habeas corpus lawsuit that argued Ansley's detention was unconstitutional and asked a federal judge to release him. The federal government countered that Ansley was a flight risk with no ties to the U.S. But all of Ansley's new friends were determined to prove otherwise. They drove three hours from Cleveland Heights to the federal hearing in Michigan. We rented a bus. And then we packed the bus with people from Ainsley's Army and people interested in the case. And we went up to Ann Arbor and packed the courtroom so that they had to bring in extra chairs because there weren't enough seats. Their presence proved that Ansley did have ties to the community. ICE agreed to finally grant Ansley parole as long as he wore an ankle bracelet. He was released right around Thanksgiving 2018. By then, he'd been jailed for more than two years. He then lived with Gary and Melody and recently moved into an apartment he shares with another asylum seeker. His asylum case is still unresolved, and he can't get visas for his family, so they're still in Haiti. He gave ICE his current address and checks in regularly. He has a full-time job at a foundry. I go to church. I am taking an English class at a high school. You're listening to 70 Million and their episode from Season 3, How the Asylum Process Became Another Carceral Matrix, and this is Making Contact. To keep up to date on our shows and get behind-the-scenes information, visit radioproject.org. And now, back to 70 Million. Back in Arizona, at the Eloy Detention Center in 2019, Maria is feeling a similar despair that Ansley felt. I'm very depressed. Very. I don't know what to do anymore. I've been locked up for so long. Her only escape is to sleep. But when she does, I feel like someone is going to trap me. She also worries about her niece living with a strange family in New York. I'm the only one who knows how to take care of her better than anyone else. Her only way to reunite with her niece is to fight for asylum. Like Ansley, Maria needs an attorney. But she can't afford to pay for one. Almost literally every attorney, or at least literally every attorney we spoke to, who was in Arizona, said we are at capacity. We have cases, many cases, just like Maria's. We want to take this case if we could, but we have exponentially more clients than we're supposed to have. Sean Wellock is a brand new immigration attorney who heard about Maria's case from volunteers. He initially agrees to just give legal advice, but ends up taking on the case pro bono because no one else will. I kept expecting to find out at some point, wait, okay, okay, there's been a misunderstanding. Everything we thought we knew about the facts was was wrong, or there's some massive deception here. But no, the more we talked with her, the more we were like, this person's been put through hell, and she needs help. 
So Sean, along with his associate Herman Herrera, applied for asylum for Maria. Maria faced death threats in Guatemala, and the immigration judge explains in his ruling she is credible, but he denies her asylum request. He didn't want to grant me asylum. I don't know why. Her attorneys think she still has grounds to appeal, so she can't reunite with her niece. Things start looking up when a stranger volunteers to sponsor her. I figured we have the room for her and her daughter, and I called my husband, and then I called my mother and asked. I told them about the story, and, and it was, you know, an overwhelming yes ever since. Anita Romero, a retiree in New York, heard volunteers were collecting letters of support to convince ICE to release Maria, but she wanted to do more. And just like Melody and Gary had hosted Ansley, Anita will house Maria if ICE agrees to let her out. Despite Anita's offer to sponsor her, Maria is denied parole. Her heartbreak became our heartbreak, and, um, you know, it, it took, it took a, a month or so, you know, while she processed it and, and um, made her decision about whether to press forward, and I'm so glad she did, you know, decide to keep on fighting. By December 2019, supporters of Maria and her niece collect letters and petitions calling for Maria to be released and reunited with her niece. But ICE denies her parole for the third time. Hi, everyone, and good morning. I am Kelly Butler from Legislative District uh, 28 in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. It's a sunny day right before Christmas, and lawmakers and clergy hold a press conference outside the Arizona State Capitol to ask guys to reconsider Maria's parole request. Then James Pennington of First Congregational United Church of Christ takes a turn at the podium. They are causing further pain, trauma, mental, physical, spiritual health issues that will extend far beyond just this moment in time. This is the definition of inhumane treatment. ICE's position doesn't change. We ask ICE to explain the reasoning behind the parole denial. In response, ICE's spokesperson, Yasmin Pitsokiv, sends us a statement reciting the facts of the case, but no explanation as to why Maria was turned down. Maria's next step is to appeal. There is one more option, though. Maria's attorneys prepare to file a habeas corpus petition. That's the same type of federal lawsuit that helped Ansley get out of detention. Basically, they want to argue that Maria's prolonged detention is violating her constitutional rights. By January, it's been 10 months since Maria's been in custody and away from her niece. So we visit her at the detention center. It's a Saturday early morning. The Eloy Detention Center is ribboned with uninviting concertina wire and doesn't look any different than a prison. It's actually run by CoreCivic, the largest private prison corporation in the U.S. They have contracts at all levels of government for more than 45 facilities, including county jails, federal prisons, and immigration detention centers. In 2019, CoreCivic revenue was nearly $2 billion. We were allowed to shake hands with her. She was uncuffed, wearing a green uniform and black shoes, and her hair was pulled back. 
she thanked us for coming and, and we sat across this table from her in this little tiny room on these blue plastic chairs. Maria told us that she um, had a conversation over the phone with her attorney and she told him that she really wants to be deported. Maria's lawyers had planned to file the habeas corpus lawsuit in the hopes of getting her out. But Maria tells us she can't stand being in detention any longer. She thinks deportation at this point is the fastest way to be reunited with her niece. Her plan is to stay in Guatemala with a friend she met in detention. Maria's deportation flight is scheduled for March 11, 2020. Almost one year after she and her niece had asked for asylum. That day, the World Health Organization declares a worldwide pandemic due to COVID-19. In response to the pandemic, the head of the CDC issues a ban that closes the border to some categories of immigrants. Asylum seekers who attempt what Maria and her niece did, walk up to a port of entry and ask for protection, now are typically turned away or flown back to the countries they fled. The asylum system at the southern border is effectively shut down. Sarah Pierce from Migration Policy Institute again. The Trump administration has used the pandemic as an opening to accomplish more on asylum in just one move than they could have done in years. Hola, mami. Hola, nena. Quiero muchos juguetes. ¿Cuál es tu juguete que te gusta? That's Maria and her niece back in Guatemala, talking about all the toys the child wants. It's mid-August, and it's been five months since they were reunited at the airport and deported together. Maria keeps in touch with us and her friends via WhatsApp. There's no work here. Everything is closed because of the quarantine. The restaurants are closed, all of them. Everything is shut down. And the pandemic doesn't want to go away. Days after she arrived, Guatemala's president ordered a lockdown. Large parts of the economy were closed. She was lucky to find a temporary place to stay with her friend. She tried to bring a sense of normalcy to their new life together. During their first days, they went to church, they went to eat Guatemala's classic pollo campero, they celebrated the girl's seventh birthday. Her niece really wants to go to school, even talks about becoming a doctor one day. But schools are all closed. I'm teaching her words, how to join words together, so when she goes to school, it won't be hard to read. It won't be hard to learn, like it was for me. Maria taught herself how to read during all those months in the Eloy Detention Center. And now she's teaching her niece. Detention was like a private school for me where I learned to read. Maria says she's relieved to have left before COVID-19 hit the Eloy Detention Center. But she fears being back in the same country as a gang that tried to kill them. 
Mami me dice, ¿por qué los mandaron de regreso a Guatemala? Her niece asks, why did they send us here? Sí, aquí este es muy peligroso, me dice. Y es muy malo este lugar, me dice. Y ¿por qué les mandaron de regreso, me dice? Y yo le digo que... She says, mami, why did they send us back to Guatemala? It is too dangerous here, she tells me. It's a bad place. I tell her it was the judge's decision. It wasn't mine. I tell her everything will be okay. But she says to me, Mommy, I don't want anything to happen to you. I don't want to wind up alone. Maria always tries to explain, but it's hard. Now that she's homebound because of the pandemic, it reminds her of being in detention, but it's completely different. She has what's most important right next to her, her daughter. You were just listening to 70 Million Season 3, How the Asylum Process Became Another Carcer Matrix. Thank you to 70 Million for use of this episode. We have a lot of information on our website, including a link to their reform toolkit based on this episode. The Making Contact team includes Monica Lopez, Adida Johnson, Lisa Rudman, Sonia Green, Sabine Blazin, and I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.